Before I start this week's podcast, just a quick note to thank the photographer who created the image on the podcast cover art. That's Sora Shimazaki at Pexels. This week, the transcript of this will probably be available on Monday. Got quite a busy weekend planned. Okay, let's get cracking. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been another busy one this week, so let's get on with it. Sanctions once again top the list of stories, with more stories relating to actions being taken together with proposals for further action across the international community following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's more on fraud activity and recovery this week, a bit of anti-money laundering advice from the Charity Commission, and another update from Companies House on the Beneficial Ownership Register. We start again with sanctions this week. I said a couple of weeks ago that I thought things would ease up. Ease up. I was wrong then. Well, this week, but for a lot of churning in the EU, it's been relative to certain weeks, uh, relative to previous weeks, certainly, it's been a quiet period on the sanctions front. Let's start with the United Kingdom. The UK government has announced its intention to add certain professional services to the sanctions list, effectively ending the supply of accountancy services, management consultancy and PR public relations. The provision of these services, according to the press release, accounts for 10% of Russian imports in those sectors. Russian oligarchs and their businesses have relied on UK firms for many years in their quest for reputation and financial enhancement and management. But that will now stop, at least eventually, given the likely delay in full implementation of this latest strand of sanctions. The government believes this will have a significant impact on the ability of the Putin regime and Russian business to operate. That remains to be seen. Curiously, these restri- uh, services restrictions come some time after the Big Four announced a conscious decoupling from their Russian and Belarusian partners, so one might reflect on whether this will have a significant real impact now. Interestingly, law firms are excluded from this latest limitation on services. Indeed, some firms continue to work even for those sanctioned as they seek to unravel their liabilities. I suspect this has some human rights perspective to it, since sanctions tend to cut across various convention rights. Leaving sanctioned individuals without representation may be a breach of those rights. The same press release also announced that sanctions against misinformation have been introduced, sanctioning individuals and organisations who spread disinformation about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The list includes war correspondents for Russian radio and television, together with Russian television and internet information providers. And the term information is used as loosely as I dare use it. Allied to the professional services elements of the sanctions this week is the news that STEP, which is the Society of Trusts and Estate Practitioners, has updated its guidance for trusts and estate service providers on the European Commission's restrictions on trusts and similar legal arrangements with a Russian connection. The comprehensive guidance, for those unfamiliar with the text up to now, highlights the changes made in yellow. Those aspects updated include trusts with a Russian connection, changes to prohibited services and the relationship to EU banks. The changes are effective from 1st May. 
One footnote to sanctions this week comes from the Financial Markets Law Committee, the FMLC. The FMLC is a charity established for the purpose, according to the Charity Commission website, of identifying issues of legal uncertainty affecting wholesale financial markets, including inconsistencies between draft law or regulation and market practice, and to publish proposals for resolving them. This week, it published the minutes of its April 22nd meeting, at which was raised the prospect of the FMLC undertaking work on legal uncertainty generated by the sanctions on Russia. It was felt that now may not be the right time, as there would be minimal engagement from parties needed for effective research to be undertaken. However, a lessons learned option remained following the resolution of the conflict, whenever that might be. It was further noted by those present that the sanctions had generated some uncertainty due to cross-jurisdictional differences in approach and extent, though this is something which, frankly, might have been anticipated given the broad international revulsion at the Russian action in Ukraine. Members further commented that sanctions were impacting banks in their role as agent and members of syndicates, presumably in syndicated loan agreements, as well as in relation to the payment system. Away from the United Kingdom and across to the EU this week, it's been quite busy in uh, the European Union as it continues uh, to be incredibly active on the sanctions front and its leaders have spent much of the last week outlining its latest proposed response to the invasion of Ukraine. The President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, gave a speech at a plenary of the European Parliament in which the European Union's sixth package of sanctions was announced. The package is broad in scope and builds on much of the work already undertaken. First, and in remembrance of the atrocities committed in the northern Ukrainian city of Busha, or Bucha, certain high-ranking officers responsible have been listed and will, President von der Leyen said, be held accountable for their actions. Further, it was announced that Spurbank will be removed from the SWIFT International Payments Instruction Service, further compromising the ability of the Russian financial system to operate effectively, isolating, so she said, the Russian financial sector from the global system. Additionally, and in moves which echo those undertaken by the United Kingdom this week, President von der Leyen announced that the three main state-owned Russian broadcasters would be banned from EU airwaves, as well as their account uh, accountants, consultants and spin doctors will no longer be available to provide services to the regime and its allies, again echoing what was done in the United Kingdom. However, the most significant bone of contention when it comes to Russian sanctions and EU member states is their reliance on Russian energy. While recognising that energy sanctions for some member states are easier to embrace than for others, President von der Leyen recognised that it was something which simply had to be addressed. Therefore, arguably the most radical part of the announcement was the proposal for a complete ban on Russian oil by sea and pipeline, both crude and refined. This builds on the coal announcement made previously. However, it could not be achieved quickly because of the reliance of some nations, particularly Slovakia and Hungary, where their leaders have expressed concerns about the impact a ban would have on the economic structure of these countries. Therefore, the Commission has proposed a six-month gradual phase-out of Russian oil, allowing member states to seek and find alternative supplies. There's a significant development, this is a significant development indeed, but the scale of the task should not be downplayed. 
the EU imports 3.5 million barrels of Russian oil and derivative products every day, and establishing alternative supply lines will take weeks and months of negotiation at a time when many other nations are also seeking supplies. Now away from sanctions and movement towards fraud. First, a bit of a blast from the past from the Serious Fraud Office, the SFO, this week, and its continuing action against the boiler room fraud masterminded by Jeffrey Revel Reed, and for which he was jailed in 2014. This week, the SFO has announced the return of a further £1 million to 200 victims of the fraud. This £1 million comes on top of £3 million already returned to victims under Operation Steamroller, as the prosecution and recovery operation has been labelled. The SFO has been at it for over seven years, but time seems to be no deterrent to it. If there are funds to be recovered, the SFO will take the time needed to recover it. The second recovery story this week relates to the late Basim al-Sheikh, who worked as an agent for Petrofac in the United Arab Emirates. Al-Sheikh paid bribes to secure contracts and then laundered the funds through two separate companies. The SFO has announced that Westminster Magistrates Court granted forfeiture orders on three accounts containing the proceeds of crime, allowing almost £600,000 to be recovered. An important money laundering story this week comes from... I suppose an unusual source in that it comes from the Charity Commission for England and Wales. It's issued a warning to the third sector on the use of cash couriers. Cash couriers, who are individuals used to carry volumes of cash across national borders into often remote areas without an economic ecosystem, are still used by some charities as a means of effecting their operations in some parts of the world. This has been brought to a head in recent years by law enforcement agencies identifying an increase in those being stopped carrying cash from apparently charitable, for apparently charitable purposes on behalf of particular named charities. Of course, there are many well-established reasons why cash couriers should not be used. As the Commission identifies, the use of cash couriers is a common method used by terrorist organisations to transfer cash for use within disputed areas of the world. Indeed, charities have been caught up in such activity in the past, not necessarily as the source of funds, but assisting in the transfer of them, notably in the North Caucasus region of uh, Eastern Europe during the Chechen conflict. To go further down this path, in 2015 the National Risk Assessment identified the use of cash as representing a high risk of terrorist financing, singling out cash couriers as a particular problem. So it does seem odd, given the known risks, that the Charity Commission has deemed it necessary to issue this guidance. Surely they knew about it already. Anyway, it has done, it has issued this guidance, so what has it said? Well, as well as identifying the known risk of the association of cash couriers and terrorist activity, the Charity Commission also identified the risk of confiscation of such funds by law enforcement agencies. There's then the super-added difficulty of proving the legitimacy of the funds and allied delays in their recovery. The advice goes on to recognise the needs some charities have in sending funds internationally in order to carry out their work. Where this is needed, then conventional financial mechanisms should be used. The regulated banking sector provides the charity with verifiable transactions and accountability for its funds as is required as part of their oversight. However, the advice 
does recognise that in some circumstances it may be necessary for charities to operate cash transactions. Where this is needed, then the charity trustees must demonstrate why the circumstances are so exceptional as to need to operate cash transfers and that the risks of that have been managed. If these are not undertaken, then the regulator may well take action. Specifically, in undertaking the assessment of the risk, the Charity Commission advises that where using a cash courier, the courier and property safety should be considered, assessed and managed with the process of consideration, assessment and management recorded. Further, that due diligence should be, due diligence rather, should be carried out on the courier with written agreement as to the charity's expectations, the currency amount carried, the detail on the mechanics of the process, including the identification of the recipient. The Commission further advises that bespoke insurance may be needed to cover the risks, and while this is probably a legitimate charitable expenditure, I would question whether the premium, depending on the places to which the funds have been couriered, would render obtaining the insurance financially prohibitive. Uh, in order to assist with border crossings, the courier should have all documentation, so the Commission goes on to say, all the documentation which is necessary to prove the veracity of the transfer to law enforcement with a designated charity representative available for contact if it is needed. Further, that a courier transfer value of £10,000 or more should be declared to HMRC, that's Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, prior to departure and similarly declared when arriving in the UK from overseas. Finally, the Charity Commission makes a when in Rome stipulation that local laws be complied with depending on the destination. One more money laundering story this week, and it comes from the European Union. In February last year, the European Commission asked for advice on the extent of and risks associated with non-bank lending across the EU. This week, the European Banking Authority, the EBA, published a report responding to the call for evidence, or sorry, call for advice. While concluding that non-bank lending was not as prevalent in the EU as it was in other countries, it did recommend ensuring that all non-bank lenders should be comprehensively covered by the European Union's anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing framework. This is necessary to ensure that the principle of harmonisation is observed and that the existing framework embraced all obliged entities. The term, uh, the term obliged entity comes from the European Union's fourth anti-money laundering directive and was designed to broaden the scope of entities caught by the directive. Broadly, it includes but isn't limited to credit institutions, financial institutions and money service businesses and financial and legal entities, for example, tax advisors, accountants and so on, what you might call the usual suspects. In February... The United Kingdom Parliament's Treasury Select Committee produced a report on economic crime looking at fraud, online scams and economic crime generally. This week the government, the Financial Conduct Authority and the Payment Systems Regulator responded to that report. The report and the responses are broad-ranging and have been welcomed by the committee's chair, Mel Stride MP. The government has indicated that it will legislate in these areas. The Queen's speech happens in the United Kingdom next week, 10th of May, I believe, and while the government has indicated the, that a further economic crime bill will be introduced to strengthen action already taken 
against Russia for its actions in Ukraine, it is also the case that the online safety bill will be introduced to address these issues. This latter point relating to online safety was confirmed in the minutes of the March Financial Conduct Authority board meeting. The minutes, released this week, provide that the government had informed the FCA that the online safety bill will include fraud offences. be interesting to see how these bear comparison to, uh, comparison to those under the Fraud Act 2006, as well as a freestanding duty which will require online platforms to address the problem of scam ads, which frankly was something we covered in last week's Financial Crime Weekly with the release of the Advertising Standards Authority report on scam ads. An interesting footnote to the minutes is that calls to the FCA relating to scams are responsible for 40% of its total volume of calls received, indicating the scale of the problem. Uh, on the back of that, actually, I suppose uh, there's more scamming stuff from the Financial Conduct Authority. That is not to say that, that it's the FCA doing the scamming. So off the back of that discussion around scammers and the volume of calls they generate for the FCA, on Thursday, the Financial Conduct Authority announced its scam smart scheme which targets screen sharing scams this time now these forms of scam where a fraudster will gain the trust and confidence of a victim before convincing them to allow access to their computer frequently by getting the victim to download software to facilitate the fraud are becoming more prevalent problematically the fca indicates that from its own research some 47 percent of people uh, would not regard a request to download software so the scammer can gain access to, to their device as a red flag. Frankly, YouTube is full of individuals with meta-computer skills who've taken to attack the form of call centres which perpetrate such scams, and the FCA could do worse than flag some of their content to the public. In my experience, two of the best are Jim Browning and a, a YouTube site called Scammer Payback. Both not only explain what is happening and how the fraudsters carry out their fraud, but they've frequently been able to intervene and save victims from, say, from losing thousands. Get ready for some binge-watching would be my advice. And finally this week, another update on the Register of Overseas ent ent Entities. Rather. And last week you may recall that we had an update from Paul Scully, who is the Minister for London and the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State, on the progress which has been made by Companies House on the Register of Overseas Entities following the Royal Assent being given to the Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act 2022. Well, this week, Companies House has provided a further update which, to all intents and purposes, rehearsed what was said last week by the Minister. The Register will require those overseas entities owning land in the United Kingdom to register the beneficial owner or managing owner or officer and be registered with Companies House. Those overseas entities already owning land in the United Kingdom have six months from the date the of uh, the register is operational to register their ownership. The information will then be made available on a publicly accessible register. A full fact sheet is available on the government website. That is it for this week. Wasn't too long. Shorter than I thought it would be. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me next week. Thanks very much, everybody. 